I preached a sermon series called Counterfeits, and if you missed that, you ought to go back and listen to it. If you never listen to any other preacher, you might enjoy it. <laughs> but uh, even if you did listen to it, it may be worth revisiting, even if the, uh, or especially if the results of uh, last Tuesday's elections have you uh, bewildered and befuddled. Um, here's a little bit of uh, what I was talking about and getting at in that series, and maybe it'll help you make some sense of that, but more importantly, make, make some sense of where things are, I believe, in our nation. Um, I believe, and I've believed this for a while, I've spoken of this repeatedly, that the United States is currently experiencing the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God, when you and I think about the wrath of God, we uh, tend to think about fireballs coming from heaven and volcanoes and the earth opening up and swallowing people and that type of thing. And that's usually not uh, how God's wrath is revealed. Uh, sometimes it is, but, but not usually. Um, God's wrath is simply put this way. It is the removal of His blessing and protection allowing the consequences of our sin to take full effect. That is the wrath of God. And so when God allows our consequences to take full effect, we end up with what we've asked for. We've asked for God to get out of our lives, and so God removes himself from our lives, from our society, from even our nation. And our nation, I believe, is guilty of committing what I would call unnatural sins. Now, uh, there's a difference, I believe, between a natural sin and an unnatural sin. Uh, and both are sin. Both are offenses against God. Um, sins that are unnatural are sins that, that go against the very nature of who God has created us to be as humans. And so to give you a little bit of a contrast, uh, let me give you a couple of examples of natural sin. One example of natural sin might be greed. Okay, Greed, I believe, is, it's obviously a sin, but it's, it's what we might call a natural sin. Why do I call it that? Well, God designed us to be self-preserving. He designed us to be self-providing. These are good and natural instincts that God put into man before sin ever entered the world. However, when we twist those good and natural instincts to provide for ourselves and to preserve ourselves, and we twist it and become obsessed with it, and instead we take that to a, to a terrible degree, to an obsession that hurts other people, to an obsession that corrupts ourselves, then it has become sinful greed. We've taken what God has created naturally within us that is good and proper, and we've turned it into something sinful. And so it is a natural sin. Greed is. Another example would be lust. If you lust after someone who is of the opposite sex, that again is a natural sin. Why do I call it a natural sin? Because God designed male and female bodies in such a way that there is a desire for one another. I will not draw you a picture, okay? But the way God has designed female and male bodies is natural. It is good. And God designed the very act of reproduction 
to be a pleasurable act. Why did God make it so pleasurable? Why? Because God wanted to ensure the multiplication of the human race. And so again, this is natural. It is good. God has created us this way. However, when we take those natural and good instincts and the natural and good way that God made us, and we twist those natural and good instincts into something that violates the parameters that God has intended for us in that regard, then that can become sinful lust. And so lust, greed, and we could list a whole lot of other sins are what I would call natural sin. We take what God has made into a, put into us as natural and good, and we've corrupted it. However, there is such a thing that Romans 1 and elsewhere talks about that is unnatural sin. Unnatural sin not only goes beyond what God has intended, but it goes against the very nature that God has made us as humans. Unnatural sins are abominations. Unnatural sins will not go unanswered for. Now, what has our nation done with regard to unnatural sin? I believe that our nation has committed unnatural sins, and we have not repented of unnatural sins, but we have in fact celebrated unnatural sins and encouraged others to commit unnatural sins. Well, what sins are these? What unnatural sins have we committed and not repented of and celebrated and even encouraged others to commit? Well, number one, going back in history just a little bit, we have removed God. From society. This is an unnatural sin. See the removal of prayer and Bible reading in the public, from the public schools, that was simply a sign of a deeper reality. The deeper reality was this, that we the people don't want God in our lives. And if we do want God in our lives, we want God over here on Sundays, on Sunday morning, for an hour, maybe, maybe two, if we're really spiritual. That's where God belongs. Not on Monday through Saturday. That's my time. God, you get, sun you get Sunday morning, unless I got something better to do, you know, but that's, that's your place, God. That's what we've told God. This is an, an unnatural act of rebellion against God's authority. It's against God. By the very nature that God has given every human on the face of the earth, we have a desire to know God and to experience God. The atheist is the person who fights and fights and fights against the nature that is within him to know and to experience God. The suppression of that desire to know and experience God invites God to leave us alone. And so he will, to our own destruction. 
So number one, we've removed God from our society. Number two, we've legalized the murder of those made in the image of God through abortion and through euthanized deaths. You know, since the decision of Roe v. Wade, some 60 to 70 million humans have been murdered in their mother's womb. To be clear, I'm not talking about those rare instances in which a pregnancy is terminated due to some medical condition that, will, that might otherwise take both the life of the mother and the child, but rather that which is done as a matter of convenience. And now, now since the overturn of Roe v. Wade, in these elections that we've seen recently, and not too much before that, with very few exceptions, the American citizenry has begun to codify the continuation of the murder of the innocents. When we, as a nation, outdo Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia in intentionally destroying the image of God in humanity, this is a sin that invites God's wrath. And God has begun to oblige our request. The third unnatural sin that our nation has engaged in is this. We've destroyed the sanctity of sexuality and marriage. Since the decision of Obergefell in 2013, we've decided that marriage is whatever we say it is instead of what God says it is. This is a renouncement of God's authority. A renouncement of God's authority in the very first institution that God created. The first institution God created was not the state. It was not the church. It was the home. It was marriage. And we have renounced God's authority. And this has quickly led to people renouncing God's authority in other matters including even his, his determination of whether a person is a male or a female. We have male children now in the public schools in Lubbock ISD. We have male children now insisting that they are females. We have female children insisting that they are males. We have either insisting that they are neither. And we have some even insisting that they are animals. They call themselves furries. And they insist that when they come to class and they want to get a drink of water, that a dog bowl be provided for them so they can get down on all fours like an animal and lap it up. And our school districts oblige this nonsense. We've destroyed what God has made sacred, our sexuality, and by extension, marriage. These are unnatural sins. These unnatural sins, the removal of God from our lives, the murder of God's image, and the destruction of the sanctity of God's gift of sexuality and marriage have been committed, they have been not repented of, they have instead been celebrated, and now they are promoted to others, even children, and sometimes even in the name of God himself. The natural consequences 
of God giving us over to our own desires has been, if you take a big step back and look at the large picture, the historic picture, it has been a rapid degeneration back to paganism with the evidence being an exchange of Christian social structures to pagan ones. I spoke before in this previous series about how the West became a Christianized type of culture back in the uh, 3rd century A.D. And it's taken many, many centuries for many, many of the benefits that we now enjoy to be instituted into humanity. But now, all of these structures are becoming quickly undone as the West reverts back to a paganism idea. For example, we're moving from a culture of life to a culture of death. We're we're moving from free speech for all, that's a Christian idea, by the way, free speech for all, to free speech for the elites, the rest of us. We've gone from educating children to indoctrinating them. We've gone from the potential advancement of all to the equal stagnation of all so that no child may succeed. We've gone from liberty to a society where compliance is the greatest virtue. And there's much more. One of the things that I'm going to talk about today is something that seems very innocuous, very lighthearted. It's the rainbow, right? And and the the idea of a a rainbow. And we're in the book of Genesis, by the way, in chapter 9. But over the years, over the past number of years, the rainbow has become a symbol of the LGBTQ movement. Now, I want to talk a little bit about symbols before we get into the text. Because the meaning of symbols change to whatever people want those symbols to mean. It's just like language. Language changes, and if we all decide the blue is now green, then the sky is green, okay? We call it something else. And, uh, and so symbols, the meaning of symbols changes. For example, a cross, a very important symbol for each one of us, right? A cross in Jesus' day was a symbol of execution. Now a cross is a piece of jewelry. Okay, and I'm not knocking you if you're wearing a cross. It's, that's fine. It may have meaning to you, okay? Uh, it may have no meaning. It may just be pretty. That, that's fine. Uh, I'm not knocking that at all. But can you imagine if you lived back in the days of Jesus and Paul and Peter and all the rest, wearing a, a, little, a little necklace around your, your neck that had a, an electric chair or a hangman's noose? That was the meaning of a cross. Back then, well, the the meaning of a cross has changed over the years. I'll give you a very different one. A swastika. A swastika has changed. Now, these images you see on the the screen, you see a swastika and you're hopefully immediately offended. But that top image is from the Swastika Fruit Company in California in the 1920s. Fine-eating California fruit. Swastika. The image uh, beneath it, I don't know if you can read it, it's a pendant. It says Coca-Cola, 
and it says, drink Coca-Cola bottles, five cents. You remember that way back then? You're pretty old if you remember five cents. But anyway, that's all right. What in the world is Coca-Cola doing with the swastika? Well, this is back in the 1920s. It meant something different then. Those are swastika playing cards. Now, I suggest that at Thanksgiving or Christmas, if you get together with the family and play cards, you not use those. Okay? It means something very different. Now, what happened? Well, what happened was, in the 1930s, Hitler's Nazi party co-opted the symbol. And now it means something very different. It means something very evil. By the way, y'all remember the Girls Club of America? They had a magazine. You know the name of the magazine? Swastika. It's true. Look it up. Symbols change. Okay? And so the very fact that a symbol might change shouldn't cause us great alarm. However, it's only from a human perspective that symbols change. If God gives meaning to a symbol, then that is the meaning, the true meaning of that symbol. And today I want us to discover the true meaning of the rainbow. And you might think, well, who really cares? You know, I didn't wake up today to talk about the meaning of a rainbow, but I want to tell you why you ought to care, because we'll also discover something far more important and meaningful about God and about ourselves. And so in Genesis chapter 9, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, the words will appear on the screen behind me. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah has spent the last year on the ark. Now, you thought that Thanksgiving and Christmas time, you had to be with your family for a long time, and you couldn't wait for it to get over, because we all know what family is. Family are the people that you can't escape, right? And so, You thought, man, it's so good to see you, and it's so good to see you go, right? Well, Noah couldn't see them go for a year. He and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, and of course, everything, I'm sure, went perfectly between mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law for that year on the boat. And so, fortunately, it was a big boat. Someone could go to the front. Someone could go to the back. But finally, Noah and his family, they all exit the ark. And so God now decides to give Noah some laws. These are basic laws for who? For the eight people that make humanity. By the way, we are all descendants of those eight people that make humanity. Which means if God gave the law to all of humanity then, these same laws apply to us today. And so these laws were for Noah and all of his descendants... Now, it's, there's, this is very important, and I want you to notice something before we read the text. Here's what I want you to notice. How many laws did God give Adam? One. Don't eat of that tree. What tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By implication, Adam, you got the whole world. You got everything. I'm even giving you the tree of life. You can eat from it and live forever. There's one tree, though. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from that one. Don't eat its fruit. One law. That's it. One law. Well, it didn't take Adam very long to disobey that. 
broke the law. After that, he and God had a discussion. And now, after the discussion, what happened? Adam was kicked out of Eden. And so the very possibility of anyone else ever eating of that fruit it was taken away. You and I cannot eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? We don't know where it is. We're banned from Eden. And so God removed man from the Garden of Eden. The one law that God gave Adam, you and I can't even break anymore. Not literally. And so think about all the, all the other sins that took place after that first one. For every one of these other sins that happened after that and prior to the flood, God gave no explicit instructions about those. He didn't say don't commit those. It was simply implied. So in Genesis 6, when God finally comes to the conclusion that all of humanity is wicked, where in Genesis 1 through 6 did God say don't be wicked? He didn't. When the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men, however you want to interpret that, where did God say don't do that? He didn't say it. When Lamech in Genesis 4 decided to marry two wives instead of one, where did God ever say you can't? He didn't. When Cain murdered his brother Abel. Did God ever say to Cain, don't murder your brother Abel? Not exactly. He did say sin is crouching at the door. Watch out. But God did not apparently say, hey Cain, I know what you're thinking. I see everything. You're not going to get away with it. Don't murder. It's wrong. God didn't say that. All of these sins that man committed were implied sins. Here's the point. By the time we get to Noah, God has allowed Noah to see that without God as our source of moral authority, it doesn't take very long for humanity to become very wicked and to become very self-destructive, even apart from specific instructions on how to be good and how to avoid evil. A lesson for you and me is this. If you and I want to have a moral society, if you and I want to be successful and to be moral, and if we want to pass that success and morality down to our children and our grandchildren, we must allow God to have his proper place. He must be the source of authority for us. Well, now Noah has disembarked from the ark, and God gives Noah a blessing. God gives Noah a new covenant and some very basic moral laws that he and all of his descendants should follow. And so this covenant that God makes with Noah by extension, as I said, this covenant extends to you and me today. So what God promises Noah, he promises us. 
What God commands Noah, He commands us. What He requires of Noah, He requires of us. We read in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Question, how did God bless Noah? Answer, it's right there in the verse. With the gift of reproduction. The ability to produce a progeny is a blessing. It is not a curse. Shame on us parents if we ever imply to our kids that they are a curse. That they are a burden. They are not. Now, what can be a burden is being a responsible parent and finally having to grow up and act right and act responsibility. Yes, there are burdens that come upon you there. There's a difference between the burden of being a responsible parent and your children being a burden. If you have kids, they are not a burden. They are a blessing. Perhaps somebody here would feel the need today to call their grown kids and apologize and say, if I ever made you feel unworthy of my love, if I ever made you feel like you were a burden to me, I apologize. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. You may touch a deep felt need in your kid's life if that's your case. The command of God still stands today. We are to be fruitful and multiply. One, cho- one translation says, Have children and make yourselves plentiful so that you crowd the world. People say, Well, in the world overcrowded, isn't it overpopulated? No, it's not. This world can sustain much more. This This uh, command still stands today. God says in verse 2, The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Here God is promising that animal life will not be a threat to humanity. How? By putting the fear of humanity, the fear of man, into animals. In verses 3 and 4, God says, Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Here, God explicitly allows all humans to eat meat. Now, if you're a vegetarian, that's fine for you. But according to this verse, there's no way for you to claim any kind of moral superiority over those of us that are a little bit more carnivorous. We literally have God himself saying it's okay to eat meat. I mean, personally for me, salad is the food that my food eats. That's what salad is, all right? But the one rule is this. Don't eat an animal that has its lifeblood in it. What does that mean in real terms and and, in terms that we can understand? Don't eat an animal that's still living. And you might think, well, that's gross. That's savage. Yes, it is. We don't do that. Good for us. We don't do that. 
and so God wants, even in, the, even in the killing of the animals, God wants that done, I believe, in a merciful way. There's no reason to make an animal suffer unnecessarily, even if it's going to be food for you. God cares about the animals. There's many scriptures that talk about that. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, God says, And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. Remember, life, uh, life is in the blood. And if man should lose his life, it's a very serious thing. We'll understand why in a minute. I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. And God makes it even more clear in the next verse. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. Keep that verse up there for just a minute on the slide. I want you to understand something about this verse. Sometimes people wonder if it's okay if, if God sanctions capital punishment for crimes like murder. This verse pretty much answers that. I mean, God is so much in favor of capital punishment that he wrote a poem about it. This is a poem. He made it very easy to remember. Here's why capital punishment is okay and even sanctioned by God. Every human carries the image of God. Let me say that better. Every human is the image of God. Murder is the intentional destruction of the image of God. Murder, as terrible of a crime as it is against the victim, it is even a higher crime against God himself, who made that victim in his own image. And to fail to take the life of a murderer diminishes the importance of the image of God. In every human. A failure to carry out capital punishment essentially says the image of God in the victim, eh, it's not that important. No big deal. We'll punish the guy, but it's not, it doesn't rise to that level. That type of crime against God doesn't rise to that level. Now, some Christians would say, well, you know, there's an Old Testament verse. You know, what about the New Testament? I mean, they'd say Jesus wouldn't be in favor of capital punishment. Yes, he was. He said so. Read your Bible. When Jesus did trial, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, asked him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Now, if Jesus did not believe that Pilate had that authority, he very well could have easily said, no, you don't. God didn't give governments the right to practice capital punishment, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said this. He said that your authority, Pilate, to practice capital punishment comes from God himself. He said you would not have that authority 
unless it was not given to you from above. Jesus implies that capital punishment, even the capital punishment of himself, was a rightful authority that Pilate had. In the next verse, God says to Noah and to all of us, but you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. And then God gives a covenant. In verses 8 through 8 and following, we read this. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I'm establishing my covenant with you. A covenant is a contract. It's a contract. There's a contract between God and humanity that God established that day. God says, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. That's you and me. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. People wonder, oh, there, you know, this is all fiction. You know, there, there wasn't some big flood that destroyed all the earth. Do you understand that if the earth was a smooth, round, perfect sphere, and it had all the water that it contains right now, that that water would rise to a level of eight miles? Eight miles. Planes don't fly at eight miles, not commercial planes. That's a lot of water. God flooded the entire earth. And now he says, he promises, it will never happen again. Verses 12 and 13. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you, or between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant that God and all the living, uh, between God and all the living creatures on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. What an incredible gift God has given us every time you see a rainbow. You know, here's the difference between the rainbow and rainbow-colored flags that you see so popularized today. One's made by God. The other's made by man. Man's rainbow flags and rainbow signs have about six colors. But God's rainbow has every color, every mixed color, every subcolor, every shade of color in the color spectrum. It is of an infinite, it is of an infinitely higher quality. Infinitely higher quality. Man's rainbow are as big as piece of paper or a poster 
or a flag, or maybe even a billboard. That's man's rainbow. God's rainbow stretches for miles. It's much, much bigger. Man's rainbow symbols are an attempt to copy God's original design. And so God gets the credit for that. God's rainbow is made by the sunlight that he created, passing through the water droplets that he created, in the sky that he created. Man's rainbow, on the other hand, written on paper or on fabric, cardboard, or some other type of surface that man manufactured, that man manufactured from the elements that God created. So God gets credit for that too. Man's rainbow symbols have whatever meaning man wants to ascribe to it. But God's rainbow has a timeless message for us. God has blessed us. God has made a covenant with us. And God will never, ever again destroy us with water. You know, that covenant that God made with Noah and with us on that day gave mankind instructions how to live. And you have to turn about one chapter later to see that that covenant was not enough. Even though man was given instructions how to live, man did not obey. Man fell into rebellion. A few chapters later, God makes another covenant with a guy named Abraham. A little while later, with a king named David. But all of these covenants were insufficient. Until there was, finally, as Jeremiah predicted, a new covenant. God made a new covenant. And he made this new covenant through his son, Jesus Christ. And it is under the new covenant that you and I have the ability, if you will, the opportunity, if you will, to have that relationship with God that our heart so desires. It is through Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him for salvation, that you and I can know the God of the universe. Isn't that amazing? that the very God of the universe that sent a flood over the whole world that created this entire universe says to you, I want to know you. I want to know little old you. Let's get to know each other. How do you ever get to know God? How do you have this covenant with God? You have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe what the Bible says about him, that he died on a cross for your sins, that he rose from the grave so that you could have eternal life. And if you trust in him, he'll begin that relationship with you. And even on the day of your untimely demise, when you die, you will still be with God. You'll be with God from the very day that you decide to follow Christ all the way through eternity. You will be with God. This is God's offer for you, if you'll accept it.